lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. This chapter, chapter 10, we talk about the tzaddik. The tzaddik is like the perfect, the ideal, the Jewish superman. One or two in every generation. It's not, within, it's not even within our power to become a tzaddik. We don't have the freedom of choice to become a tzaddik. Because as he explained in chapter 1, the tzaddik is qualitatively different than 99.9% of the rest of us. What's the definition of a tzaddik? Not the way we loosely throw the term around. Ah, oh, he's a tzaddik, a Jew. He comes to shul three times a day, he gives tzedakah, he's nice, kind. That's not the definition of a tzaddik. What's the definition of a tzaddik? The definition of a tzaddik is a Jew who has no evil inclination, who no longer has the struggle between good and evil. And this is not something within our power. For most of us, 99.9% of us, till the last breath of our life, it will always be a struggle. We can lead a disciplined life, we can do the right thing, but it's like a person who, who's on a diet. A person who's on a diet, on a strict diet, who eats healthy. It's a struggle. Even if the person's on a diet for 20 years, it doesn't mean that 20 years later, uh, you know, that, that uh, Sandu or, doesn't talk to him, doesn't speak to him, or that delicious chocolate cake doesn't speak to him. It speaks to him, but I'm disciplined. I overcome my instinct. But it doesn't mean that suddenly he lost his, his attraction or the appeal of, of that the junk food, it's there, but he overcomes. And every human being has the ability to lead a disciplined life. Just like you have junk food, you have junk lifestyle. A Jew who lives the Torah, lives a life of Torah, mitzvot, is living a wholesome life. And it takes discipline. Every human being has the capacity to be disciplined. Because when it comes to things that matter to us, we have that discipline. And the proof is my own personal experience. When it comes to business, for example, people who in their own personal lives lead totally chaotic lives. But when it comes to business, they're paragons of virtue. They make Mother Teresa, they put Mother Teresa to shame. The discipline, the self-discipline. The customer is always right. You feel like hanging the customer on the closest, uh, the nearest hook. You discipline yourself, you keep on smiling. Why? But I feel like raging, I feel like venting, I feel like telling me what I really think. So, so you feel like it. So, you don't just follow any instinct. It's bad for business. I care about money, I care about my success. I'll, I'll ruin my business. So you control yourself. So you see, when something matters to you, a person has the ability to control it. It's a, it's, a, it's a nature. God gave a human being a nature to control himself. There's no such thing, I'm out of control, I can't help myself. There's no such, there's no such excuse. There's no such argument. If you notice that even a drunk person manages to hold on the railway when he goes down the steps. He doesn't fall down. He doesn't hurt himself. He has enough presence of mind not to hurt himself. Because when something matters... Your health matters to you. You're not, you, yes, I'm drunk, but it's not an excuse. I, I have enough self Even when you sleep, when was the last time you rolled out of bed when you slept? Even when you're asleep, you have enough presence of mind not to harm yourself. So there's no such excuse. I'm drunk, I'm asleep, it's not my fault, I'm a victim. Judaism doesn't buy any of that. God gave us the ability, mind over matter, we have the ability of self-control. Every one of us has the ability of self-control, and we see that. Proof is in the pudding. When, when things really matter... We, 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 have that, we have that self-control. So when a person, and there are millions of people who lead healthy lifestyles, so we know that people have this ability. But it doesn't mean that there's been a core transformation. It doesn't mean that you're no longer tempted. That's not in your control. You can control your behavior. 
You can, you can discipline yourself. You can think in a certain way, act a certain way, eat a certain way, behave a certain way. But you can't control your emotions. To say that, that it doesn't appeal to me, that this behavior or this food doesn't talk to me, doesn't appeal to me, that's, that's delusional. Even after 20, 30, 40 years of discipline, there hasn't been a core change. You know, you still have a sweet tooth. You still attract it. But I have discipline. Of course, it gets easier with time. The more you lead a disciplined life, the more you prove to yourself, after 10, 20 years, you're not going to want to ruin it and destroy it by, by, by indulging. But it's a struggle. It's a constant struggle. There hasn't been a core change. The tzaddik is like the person who has totally transformed himself. There's been a core change. And the closest analogy is, you know, they did a test. People who have been struggling with addictions for decades. And then, when they discovered that they had a life-threatening illness, overnight, they were able to, to discard their addiction. For years, they were struggling without any success. The moment they discovered that their life is in danger, they were able to instantly, for, forever, for the rest of their life, they were able to th- throw away the cigarette and never, and never touch a cigarette again. For whatever addiction may be. What happened? What happened? What changed? What changes? That now when your life is threatened, and now you feel the power to live, the desire to live, which is so powerful, that suddenly it's no contest. The pleasure to live versus the momentary pleasure of the cigarette, it's no contest. It's so obvious. You have such clarity. The choices are so clear, crystal clear. My life or the cigarette? What what kind of question? It's not even a question. It's not even a struggle. Once that power to live, which we all have, by the way, but we don't access, we don't feel that power to live. That's why 90% of the people, 90% of the time, actively lead unhealthy lives. Even though deep down we know that being healthy is the most important thing in the world to us. From 1 to 10, it's 11. And the proof is in the pudding. If God forbid your life is threatened, you'll do anything to regain your health. But it's subconscious. It's buried. It's submerged. We can't access it. It's not a force in our life. But the moment it emerges and surfaces, when your life is threatened, and this, the power of the will to live, suddenly comes to the conscious level with such force, with such strength, Suddenly, it's, it's not even a contest. It's not a struggle. Before, you had to struggle. You had to inspire yourself. You had to realize. You had to become aware, make yourself aware, bring it to the forefront of your consciousness that being healthy is important to me. The proof is, if God forbid, I would lose my health is important. Therefore, let me make a decision based on that truth today. But it's a struggle. And it could be a, str- a lifelong struggle. 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it remains a lifelong struggle. But the moment you sense, the moment you sense the depth and the power of the will to live, suddenly it's no longer a struggle. Because once that comes to the surface, it's no longer a struggle. And the same is with our Jewishness. You know, you stop a Jew in the street. Yeah, I'm a Jew. Yeah. So, I have blue eyes and I'm Jewish. So, it means nothing. And then there's a moment of truth, whether it's during the Six-Day War or when Israel is threatened or the present war a few months ago. And suddenly, this inner truth emerges with such power, suddenly you realize that being Jewish is the most powerful thing in your life, the most powerful force in your life. For the ordinary Jew, the average Jew, 99.9% of us, to do the right thing is a struggle. It takes awareness. It takes reflection. You have to realize. You think to yourself, in the moment of truth, I know that being Jewish is the most important thing in my life. I would even give up my life, 
for my Jewishness. And that's my truth. Assimilated, never come to shul, even on Yom Kippur. No conscious connection to anything Jewish. But in the moment of truth, when you're faced with that ultimate question, being Jewish is the core of my being. It's the most important thing in my life. So when you realize that, you don't have to wait for a crisis to remind you. You live a true life. I want to lead a true life, a wholesome life. I have to lead a life that's being true to myself. It's consistent with my true nature. When does a person discover his true nature? In the moment of truth. That's when you see who you really are. Not when you can go through your entire life and you think you know who you are. And then if a person discovered, if tomorrow's a mad, a mad scientist blew up the hydrogen bomb in the North Pole and we discovered we have 30 days left to live, people would discover themselves and perhaps for the first time in their life. Everything that they thought was important was number 10 in their priority list means nothing to them. Who cares? And the things they had no time for, they neglected, is the most important thing to them. So people don't really know themselves. People are not in touch with themselves. And the moment of truth, it comes out. But a person has enough seichel, a person has enough awareness in mind that you don't need a crisis. You don't have to wait for that moment to help you confront yourself and to realize who you really are and what you deeply care about. But you can live your life today. I can live a life that's consistent with who I really am. That's what the meaning of freedom. That's the meaning of liberation. Freedom is to be true to yourself. Freedom is not to be free to live as I please. That's not freedom. That's addiction. That's not freedom. Freedom means to, be, to live a life that's true to yourself, to your essence. So a person has enough presence of mind to realize and to take upon yourself that discipline to overcome the struggle, to resist temptation, and to do the right thing, to lead a wholesome life, think wholesome, speak wholesome, speak Jewish, think Jewish, act Jewish. That's the decision that an adult makes. That's the decision that millions of Jews have made throughout all the generations, that being Jewish is the most important thing in my life. It's my core, it's my essence, it's my truth. I'm not doing this to conform to anyone. I'm doing this because I want to be true to myself. That's freedom, that's liberation. I want to be true. And when you do something, when you act in a way that resonates with your deepest, truest self, it resonates, it's real. It elevates you and inspires you. It's wholesome, it feels great. So this is the disciplined approach. However, it remains a struggle because it's an awareness of the mind, but it's a constant awareness, constant inspiration, constant struggle. The tzaddik, however, is the Jew whose neshama, whose pintle yid, whose subconscious is so strong and he feels it in his consciousness that it's no longer a struggle to tell a lie, to do the wrong thing, to act selfish, to indulge, the tzaddik abhors it. To the tzaddik, the whole idea of doing something just for the sake of self-indulgence is abhorrent. To him, everything has to be connected with godliness because the godly spark that's located at the center of our being is so strong and it has such force by him that it's, it's, it's crystal clear. He has such clarity, there's no contest. It's no longer a struggle. Well, what's the choice? Something external, something superficial. Something momentary or something genuine, authentic, godly, eternal. What's the choice? What's the option? It's it's not even a struggle. Live for the moment or live in the moment. Every moment becomes a moment, an eternal moment. Or living for the moment, a moment that you can easily discard, easily disposable. Act, speak in a way, in a way, in a lifestyle that's easily disposable. Or live in eternal moment. Every moment becomes an opportunity to connect with eternity an eternal moment, a, a, a moment that's connected to the past, a moment that's connected to the future, past, present, future is all connected. It, it, the tzaddik has clarity. 
There's no, there's no conflict. It's obvious. So this is a Jew who has no Yetzirah. Now, it's hard for us to even relate to that idea. A person who has no Yetzirah. A person who has no struggle. It's, it's like a different type of human being. As King David says, I killed my Yetzirah. I no longer have a Yetzirah. He no longer has a conflict, a struggle. He doesn't have to struggle with negativity. King David. Libi chalal bekirbi. That my heart, my left heart, which is where the Yetzirah dwells, is chalal, is like, like dead, like a corpse. So he did not have? He did not have a Yetzirah. And what about the deed he did? Ah, oh, very good question. <laughs> so now, as the Talmud says, whoever says that King David sinned is a fool. Because first you have to understand who King David was. King David was a tzaddik. There were 18,000 tzaddikim in the whole of Jewish history, one or two in every generation. A tzaddik is someone who doesn't even have a Yetzirah. From all the tzaddikim, King David is from the top seven. <laughs> now, if you read the story literally, you and I would never do what he did. So King David should be from the top seven tzaddikim. His Psalms is like the holiest book. It's read by Jews, hundreds of thousands of Jews every single day. There's something wrong, in this, something doesn't fit in this picture. It doesn't make sense. So the Talmud says, whoever takes the story of King David literally, and the rest of the Tanakh. The Tanakh is written very cryptically. So that to understand the whole story, you have to read the Torah Shabal Peh. The Torah was written like very cryptically. And the Torah Shabal Peh gives us the meat and the potatoes and gives us the whole background of what really happened. So to say that King David, to take the story literally, if you understand what a tzaddik is, a tzaddik doesn't have a yetzahara. He He... Everything about the tzaddik is divine and godly. He's consumed with godliness. His whole being is godly. It's like someone who's sad and someone who's really sad. Someone, sometimes he's sad. But sometimes you look at some people, you start crying, just their face. They're so, they, like sadness became their being. That's the difference between the tzaddik and the rest of us, 99.9% of us. We can act godly. We can do something godly. We can think something godly. We can speak in a godly way, positive, wholesome, encouraging, do a good deed. The tzaddik, his whole being is godly. It's not that he's doing something godly. His whole essence is godly. His whole being is godly. What about the sin? <laughs> so firstly, you have to remember that from their sins, the Torah was written. No one is writing any Torah about our mitzvot. You say he had no Yetzirah and he had right. act, which right. very hard to be understood in a different way. Right. We need some kind of explanation for that. Firstly, if you understand the whole story, she was actually a divorced woman. He divorced her. Because all, according to Jewish law, all the soldiers were divorced, number one. God punished him. Number two, he, he, um, he did not obey the king, and his punishment was death. But since it had the appearance of sin, it had the appearance, and that's what I'm saying, the Gemara explains the whole story, the Talmud, but since it had the appearance of sin, and someone on a high level of King David, it's like when, when you wear a dark suit, even a ketchup stain won't show up, right? It's, it's a dark suit. What difference does it make? When you're wearing fine linen, white linen, the smallest dot will show up. So a tzaddik, in comparison to the tzaddik, like, for example, Moses' sin. He hit the rock. I mean, you have to scratch your head. What was his sin? I mean, what, what did he do already? You know, you, commentaries are breaking their head trying to figure out what was his terrible sin. As a result, he was refused to enter into the land of Israel. But it doesn't mean a tzaddik can't make a mistake. A tzaddik can make a mistake. A tzaddik has choices. Even a tzaddik has to realize, because we're human and we're finite, and a tzaddik could make a mistake. 
Sarah laughed. Sarah laughed when she heard that, that she's going to have a baby. Part of her laughed in disbelief. But because we're human and we can still make mistakes because the choice, there could be a choice of good or even better. Sometimes you can choose a good thing, but it's not the appropriate choice for this, for this moment. If it's not the appropriate choice for this moment, there's a better choice, then for the tzaddik, that's considered a sin. It could be, of course it's a good thing. Moses hitting the rock was a very good thing and something very good came out of it. And that picture, we even have a whole song, Allah Selahach, Moses hit the rock and water came out. That image is a very powerful imagery that has inspired Jews for thousands of years. Even Moses could even get water out of a rock. But, but it was a sin because it was the wrong thing at the wrong time. That's not what Hashem wanted at that moment. So even the greatest tzaddik has to think before he acts. But it's, it's not a sin in the, in the simple sense of the word that's something negative or... or David sinned. Matan told him, you know, about the Kisatalash story. And, and he's, he told him, you are this man. Yeah, because it had the appearance. It had the well, appearance of it. Very clear. No. All soldiers, all Jewish soldiers would divorce their wives before they went no, to war. Once they go to war. Before they went to war. But he was go to fight for the king. Yeah. So it's like a, but the reason he sent them to the front to die was because he did not listen to the king. The king ordered them to do something and he did not obey. When you don't obey the king, Uriah did not obey David. That was his, his capital crime. And that's why he was sent to the front. That He told Yoav, make sure to send him to the front line to make sure that he should get killed because he did not obey, he did not obey David. Now... David and Bathsheba were going, to, were going to marry each other because it was Bashert. Bathsheba was the mother of Shlomo Melech. David had 18 wives, but she was the mother of Shlomo. And, but David could have waited, and it had the appearance of sin. And the Talmud says that even that was not worthy of King David. That the only reason why God allowed King David to even have the appearance of sin was to teach us the ways of Teshuvah. Because David wrote Psalm 50, uh, 51, and, and David spent the rest of his life doing teshuva, showing us the way how even when a person sins and stumbles, it shouldn't sever your relationship with God. Think, think to yourself, I'm a hopeless sinner. I, I already burnt my bridges with God. Why even bother? He showed the way, showed the path, and no matter what happens, you never burn your bridges. You can always rebuild your relationship. So David was a leader who inspired us, and, to sh- and he showed us the path of Teshuvah. See, even that appearance of sin, which wasn't technically, God forbid, he didn't have an adulterous relationship. But even the and, and King David was a soul connection. This was his soulmate. Bathsheba was his soulmate. And it produced Solomon, who's the ancestor of Mashiach. Solomon is the most perfect Jewish king. The fa- fact is, David and Melech knew that this is his soulmate, and they are going to give birth to the wisest man that ever lived. You know, King Shlomo Amelah, who is Hashem's beloved. So obviously, Hashem was pleased of this marriage. Otherwise, He wouldn't have given them the wisest man that ever lived. Um, as a result of this, of this, uh, you know, you did Hashem, Hashem's friend. So obviously, this is all kosher and holy and good. But since it had the appearance of impropriety, and maybe David should have waited, um, therefore he was punished severely, and he. Uh, his first child from Bathsheba died, and um, and he would have um, he showed us the path of truva. He showed us the path of truva. That's why Hashem even allowed him to even even fall on this level. But it's not only David. Throughout the Torah, you have to understand why the Talmud is so certain. Misha Omer David Whoever says that David sinned is making a mistake. Because if you understand what a tzaddik is, a tzaddik, 
A tzaddik is, is almost a different type of human being. A tzaddik only has urges for godliness. He has no urges. He has no urge or instinct to do anything negative. He has totally transformed himself. His godly soul is so powerful. He hears his godly voice. He hears his godly soul. So all he hears is, 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 is godly, wholesome things. He despises anything that's, that's ungodly. And his, instinctually, he just is repulsed by it. Because he's a godly, godly and wholesome person. And he despises, as King David says, I hate evil people. He hates evil with a passion. Because he's so good that he just instinctively despises anything that's the opposite of godliness and holiness. So a person who's with every fiber of his being and every bone of his body, his whole being is godly. How can you say he sinned? You know, that he was just a bum off the street. I mean, it's something that you and I wouldn't do. Like a bum off the street. Just had an adulterous relation. The, whole, the, the Talmud says... Right up front, whoever says that is, is a fool. It's impossible. You have to understand who you're talking about. You're talking about King David. You're talking about the, one of the most noble, greatest, wholesome people that ever lived. Who had no Yetzirah, a person without any Yetzirah. Godly person, had no Yetzirah. So obviously there's something a lot deeper going on. Now, a tzaddik also has to make choices. There's a famous story, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe tells of Rabbi Nachum Chernobyl. This was a student of the Baal Shem Tov. And he was a tzaddik gomer, a complete tzaddik. We're going to learn later in this chapter, there's two levels of tzaddikim. He was the higher level of the tzaddik, a complete tzaddik. Absolutely no yetzahar. And one day, um, he had his chassidim, were waiting in line to see him. And they were very poor, and the Rebbe would help them. And right before a lady comes in, she has to get married. If one of his chassidim comes in, he has to marry off his daughter, and he needs a huge sum of money to marry off his daughter, 300 gold coins. Right after him, a Jew walks in with 300 gold coins and puts it on the table. He says, Rebbe, God was good to me. I was very successful in business. Here's money. Do with it as you need. Give it to tzedakah, distribute it. So the Rebbe immediately said, wow, Hashem has answered her prayers. This chassid's prayer, the one who walked in before. Here he needed 300, exactly to the coin. The next person brings me the money. So he's getting ready to call the other person in and bring him back and giving him the money. He can go, he can go make a wedding. Mazel tov. Suddenly he starts thinking. He says, wait a minute. Why should I give 300 gold coins to one person? All my chassidim, they're barbers, Eastern Europe, they need help. I can divide it into 10 parts. And I can save 10 families. I can bring joy to 10 families, 10 broken homes. If I give each one 30 golden coins, it'll make their day. This one could pay up his debts, and this one can go back in business. And this... Sounds like a logical argument, rational argument. What's the right thing to do? And he's thinking, and he's thinking, and then he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The first thought was an instinctive thought. A Jew came, he needed help, and the next moment another Jew came, it's such an open divine providence, this is the answer. Then all of a sudden, the second thought comes, enters into the mind. Well, maybe not. He says, that's not coming from the right place. The first thought was the right thought. That, that's the right thing to do. That's, that's, that's the healthy response, that's a normal response, the uncomplicated response. Then the other way is already trying to, that's the wrong choice. See, even a tzaddik, a complete tzaddik, because he's human, and we all have, we're, we're human beings, therefore he has to be wise, he has to make the right decision. It could be a wrong decision. 
So even though he doesn't have an evil inclination, he doesn't have a, uh, any negativity in him, his whole being has been a core transformation. He's not even tempted to do anything wrong. He's only tempted to do positive things and wholesome things. He's only attracted to godly things. But nevertheless, he has to use his mind, his critical mind, and differentiate between what's right and what's wrong. So everyone has a struggle. Everyone has to make decisions. Everyone has to use their, their, their critical thinking. But... We have to struggle with the negative and positive. But Sadik has to struggle with the positive and even, and, and even a greater positive. So for Moshe, it was a sin to hit the rock. The better thing to do, the right thing to do at that moment would have been to speak to the rock. Not that hitting the rock was a sin. Look, I mean, look, it, it caused the water to, to, to gush. It was a miracle. It was an inspiring image until today. It's in the Torah. But the more appropriate response would have been for him to speak to the rock. For King David, the more appropriate response would be for him to wait and let things happen naturally without jumping the gun. Even though he did the right thing, Bathsheba did belong to him and was connected to him and was his, his, his Bashar. And it was not an adulterous relationship, but it doesn't matter. It had the appearance of scandal. It, 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 and, therefore, and that alone is already was not the right decision. And King David regretted it for the rest of his life and he did truth and showed us the path of the truth. And the same is with all the sins of the patriarchs and the matriarchs or the sins of the Torah, of the giants. These are spiritual giants. They're not people like you and I. These are people who are almost, almost like a spiritual superman. They're, 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 they're like made up of a different cloth. They have no evil inclination. They feel the godliness inside of, inside of all of us, but we don't feel it. But they felt the force of the divine spark inside with such clarity, with such depth. It was their being. It was natural for them. So for them to fall for something evil and something wrong and something adultery, and, and, and there's no way. Isn't that the definition of an angel? Well, <laughs> a tzaddik is greater than an angel. But, yes, we... The tzaddik has transcended the struggle of good and evil. He's above the struggle of good and evil. Because the tzaddik sees through, sees through this world. The tzaddik is, you know, it's interesting in the Torah... The Navi, the prophet, is called the Navi comes from the word seeing, the seer. It's called Meshuga, Ru'eh. Also, Navi, Niba comes from the root to see. It's called a Meshuga. I'm like, like a madman. Because a madman is someone who doesn't have blinders, doesn't have the limits. Our mind, our critical mind, acts as filters. It doesn't allow us to see through. So, we, so we're all part of this con that we live through. The, the madman is someone who's born without filters, he sees clearly. The tzaddik sees clearly. He sees the lies, the hypocrisy, the mediocrity, the foolishness, the, the superficiality of convention, of society. And he, he doesn't go for it. He can't go for it. He can't get excited about money, power, fame. It's all nonsense. To him. It's, it has no reality to him. He's, he sees things crystal clear. For him, he's in touch with godliness. He senses the divine energy to him. The only reality is godliness. Nothing else is real. So he's not even tempted to, to, for money, fame, power, it has nothing. On the contrary, he's repulsed by it. Because all he senses and all, 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 the only thing that's real to him is godliness because he's born without filters. He sees things clearly. So the tzaddik is, is a real person. We're almost a, uh, a caricature of, of, of who we really are. You know, because subconsciously we all have that tzaddik inside of us. That's why we're spending so much time in this chapter learning about the tzaddik. If we, if we aren't a tzaddik, we never could be a tzaddik, why are we bothering to learn about the tzaddik? Why is it important to know about the tzaddik? Because deep down, there's a little tzaddik inside of all of us. But it's hidden. It's, it's submerged. It's there. 
but the tzaddik has total access to it. So a tzaddik is not capable of lying. It's hard for us to even imagine such a person, a person who's repulsed by lies, a person who is only attracted to truth, despises anything that's deceitful or lies. It's hard for us to even imagine it because it doesn't, we don't despise it and we can live very comfortably with it. But this is the being of a tzaddik. You, know, you can tell the society is all about by the people they worship or the people they look up to, the ideal person. You know, the ideal person is the baseball player, the basketball player. <laughs> it doesn't really tell you much about the society you live in. But if the ideal person is the tzaddik, that means that the entire society is aspiring to be like the tzaddik. Maybe we can't ever reach that level, but at least we aspire. We aspire to access, to touch the tzaddik, at least in, this, in, in some level to try to be, to experience that, at least occasionally, to experience that inner wholesomeness, to experience moments where not only we don't do the wrong thing, that we shouldn't even be tempted to do the wrong At least certain moments in our life, whether it's Shabbat, or Nayantif, on Yom Kippur, or when you're praying, when you're immersed in prayer, or, or when you're immersed in Torah study, there should be moments in your life when you get a taste of the tzaddik. You can experience a little of what the tzaddik experiences all day, all the time. That you're so connected with godliness that you're only attracted to godliness. At that moment, at least. You have no desire for anything materialistic, external, superficial. It has no appeal to you. The only thing that you yearn for and that you have a passion for is our godly things. So this is, in this chapter, we're going to discuss the tzaddik. And... Because this is our ideal. When Mashiach will come, we'll all be in this level. When Mashiach will come, the entire nation of Israel will be tzaddikim. Because then the subconscious will emerge. That's the definition of Mashiach. What happens when Mashiach comes? Mashiach is not physically taking a ticket and flying to Israel and moving to Israel. Mashiach is something much deeper. Mashiach is when we'll take a ticket and move from the subconscious, when the divine spark will move from the subconscious to our conscious. That's the movement. That's the change. That's the inner transformation that will occur when Mashiach will come, when there will no longer be a Yetzirah, when we will, there will be a core transformation, when godliness will become transparent and will become crystal clear and will have clarity and will feel the force of, of it and the depth of the godly spark within us. That's a world of Mashiach. That's our own inner personal redemption. And that will spark the collective redemption. Mashiach will come. The whole human consciousness will be transformed. And everyone will be conscious of godliness. It will be transparent. It will feel natural. It's like a light switch will go on. And everyone will realize deep down, yeah, I always knew there was a God. I always knew. There are no atheists in foxholes. In moments of truth, we all know deep down. We all know the truth. We all know the score. We forget. We get distracted. When you wait, when you we're asleep, we're sleep, we sleepwalk through life. Most human beings sleepwalk through life. Mashiach is an awakening. You awake. When you're awake, you're real. Your head is working. You see things clearly. You hear things clearly. When you're dreaming, when you're sleeping, everything is confused. Everything is a, a mishka babble. Everything is things can be upside down. Things can be distorted, half truths. But when you're awake, your critical mind is working. Everything is clear. Everything. So the Mashiach is like an awakening. Right now, most of us are sleepwalking through life. The Benini, the average Jew, 
we like to sleepwalk through life and we have to struggle. It's a tremendous struggle. But when you're awake, when you're sharp, when you're alert, when things are clear, then there's no contest. Then things are obvious. So that's the world of the future. We, when we stood at Mount Sinai, we were all on the level of the tzaddik. For a brief moment, like Adam was in the Garden of Eden, for a brief moment he was the level of the tzaddik. And inevitably, once again, we will all be at the level of a tzaddik. Because the fact that there's only one human being like that means that eventually it's going to reach all of us. Because that, that's just the nature of things. You know, when you have the cutting edge, what starts out today as the cutting edge in fashion, okay, some places may take 10, 20, 30 years, but eventually it trickles down. Eventually everyone catches up. So the fact that on the soul level, you have at the cutting edge, you have Avram Avinu, you have this giant, the spiritual giant called Avram Avinu and Sarah Imenu. And you have the spiritual giant called Yitzchak Avinu and Rebecca. And you have Yaakov and the Mahot and Rachel and Leah and Moses and Aaron and King David and King Solomon and the Baal Shem Tov and the Rebbe. What that tells you is that one day, one day, eventually it will trickle down. Eventually we're all going to be, at least in a miniature way, we're all going to be in that level. So interesting how in Eastern Europe, what was the nickname for the Jew in Eastern Europe? Every Jew was called by one name. Mashka. Mashka. Mashka was the name. In Poland and Russia, used to call, you see a Jew, Mashka. Mashka comes from the word Moses. Because the non Jew knows that every Jew is a miniature Moses. Every Jew, they call the same name, Mashka. Because every Jew is, if there's one Moses, every Jew is a miniature Moses. There's one Abraham, it means eventually we have the potential. Every Jew deep down is related. So the fact that there's a tzaddik, even though it's only one or two in a generation, a person who has no Yetzirah, a person who has achieved a core transformation, he's no longer tempted to anything surface, superficial, external, egotistical, tells us that deep down we all have that, a spark of it, a reflection of it. And that's why we aspire, and that's why we connect to the tzaddik. Why do we connect to the tzaddik? Because when you see the tzaddik, you really see yourself. People are attracted to the tzaddik. The Jews have a sixth sense. When they see a tzaddik, it's, just, it's like a natural. You're just attracted to the tzaddik. Because you're really attracted to yourself. When you see the tzaddik, you're seeing a splitting image of who you really are deep down inside. And that's why the tzaddik inspires you. And you feel connected to the tzaddik. And the tzaddik helps you discover yourself helps you strengthen yourself. It's like the famous story with the uh, person who built this huge synagogue in Krakow. And the story behind it was he was very poor. And um, he had a dream that he should go to Czechoslovakia, to Prague, and he should dig under the bridge and he'll find a treasure. And you know, his grandfather came to him in his dream. And the next night he comes to him in his dream and says, you still here? You haven't gone yet? told you, go to Krakow and dig for, for the treasure. Anyway, the third night, the fourth night, and this time he's yelling at him already, what are you doing here? Go. It's fine. He can't even afford the uh, horse, horse and buggy. So he, he takes his little stick and he goes. A few months later, he arrives in Prague. The bridge that he saw in the dream happened to be next to a military installation. He starts wandering the bridge back and forth, and the, the guards, the soldiers are, are wondering who's this stranger's foreigner. He's, he's, every day he comes and he's looking at the bridge and he's wondering where he's going to start digging, how he's going to dig. 
Anyway, they, they, they arrest him. They say, he must be a spy. Foreigner. He says, spy? What spy? And he's, he's called into the chief. He tells him the truth. And, you know, this, 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 this Jew's name was, was Isaac. So the chief started laughing. He says, you know, the Jews are so stupid. They're, much, they're more stupid than I ever thought. He says, could you imagine? I dream every night that in Krakow, there's a Jew called Isaac. And under his, his, uh, under his uh, furnace, his fireplace, there's a huge treasure. <laughs> you think I'm going to go to Krakow? Firstly, probably every other Jew is called Isaac. So how am I ever going to find him? And he's laughing and he dismisses him. He says, get out of here. Come on. You, you, you. It took him a few days to get home. <laughs> he dug under his fireplace and he found the treasure. It's a famous story. And, and he built a shul. And he built a, fa- a famous shul. So what's the story? It's actually, so what's the story? So the, so the Katsuki Rebbe said, the story is that you come to the Rebbe, you come to the Tzaddik to find. You're, lurk, you're looking, you're searching. You come to find the treasure. And what does the Tzaddik tell you? The Rebbe tells you, the treasure is in Krakow. The treasure is in your own fireplace. The treasure is inside of you. You're looking for the Tzaddik. You're looking for that purity, that wholeness, that holiness. It's inside of you. Because there's a Rebbe inside of you. There's a tzaddik inside you. And the Rebbe teaches you how to access it. But you see a reflection of yourself. And that's why Jews are naturally attracted to the Rebbe, to the tzaddik. Because it's, it's a soul connection. So let's learn inside about the tzaddik. After elaborating in the previous chapter on the ongoing battle between the divine and animal soul over mastery of a Jewish body, the Alter Rebbe now proceeds to explain that one who vanquishes his animal soul and transforms its evil into good is a tzaddik. This level of tzaddik comprises two general categories. The perfect tzaddik, also called the tzaddik who knows only good, is he who has transformed all the evil of his animal soul to good while he who has not completely eradicated and converted, the, and converted the evil within him is termed an imperfect tzaddik. And a tzaddik who knows, example, possesses some vestiges of evil. The difference between the two sets of descriptive terms, complete and incomplete tzaddik, and the tzaddik who knows only good, or who knows evil, is as follows. The former set describes the degree of the tzaddik's love of God, for it is this love that earns him the title tzaddik. In the case of the complete tzaddik, it is a complete and perfect love, while the love of the incomplete tzaddik is imperfect. The latter set of terms refers to the conversion of the animal soul's evil to do good, and an individual in whom it has been entirely transformed is termed a tzaddik who knows only good, whereas one in whom a vestige of evil remains is termed a tzaddik who knows evil. It goes without saying that evil in this context refers only to the promptings of evil that may be harbored in the heart, not, of course, to actual evil expressed in thought, speech, or action. When a person causes his divine soul to prevail over the animal soul, and when he wages war against the animal soul to the extent that he banishes and eradicates its evil from its abode within him, namely the left part of, his, of the heart, 
as it is written, and you shall eradicate the evil from your midst, which implies that one ought to eradicate the evil within himself. The person who has in fact eradicated evil from his heart has not only banished the external practical expression of evil, evil thoughts, words or actions, but has eradicated the evil itself and has no place in his heart. He no longer desires evil. As to the one who achieves this goal, but finds that the evil has nevertheless not actually been converted into good, in which case his entire capacity for desire would now be directed only toward good and holiness, since with him this is not the case. He is called the incomplete tzaddik. When the Torah says you should eradicate evil from your midst, it means that as far as the tzaddik is concerned, he doesn't feel any evil. He feels no evil desires. And he has no more yetahari, he has no more attraction to anything, anything evil, anything negative, anything unwholesome. So as far as he's concerned, he feels that he's totally eradicated the evil from within him. Not only that he doesn't act on this evil, um, but he, does, he no longer has any evil. He no longer has any, any attraction toward, toward anything, anything negative. Um, but he has not totally transformed the negative. He has neutralized, he has neutralized the negative but not totally transformed. So he doesn't feel it. It's no longer a force in his life. Um, it's, as if, it's as if it doesn't exist. It's as if he has eradicated it. But he hasn't totally eradicated it. Because if he would have totally eradicated his evil, then he would have loved God. His animal soul would also come to love God. But he doesn't feel that that animal attraction towards godliness. He doesn't feel the animal attraction toward materialism, but he doesn't either feel the animal attraction toward godliness. It's as if he, he put it to sleep, he neutralized it. So it's, that's why King David says it's like a corpse. It's dead. It's dead. It has no life, it has no vitality, it has no energy, it has no pull. But he hasn't transformed it. It's a step on the way? It's one level. It's, it's a lower level of the tzaddik. It's a lower level of the tzaddik, that he has at least neutralized that force that's more, that's above uh, most of us. Most of us can never achieve this level. Most of us can never put our Yetzirah to sleep. Our Yetzirah is alive and well and healthy and vibrant, and with each passing day it seems <laughs> he gets more and more vibrant and vigorous and energized, uh, comfortable. Um, but we do have that ability to restrain ourselves or to discipline ourselves. But the tzaddik does, has risen above it and is able, is able to neutralize it. So he no longer feels its strength, no longer feels its power. It's powerless over him. It's like a dead corpse. It's there, but it's dead. But he hasn't transformed it. Because there's one thing, how the godly soul is attracted to godliness. And there's another thing when the animal soul is attracted to godliness. Because the animal has its own way of attraction. When the animal soul is attracted to something, it's a very powerful powerful attraction and, um, and uh, he, he hasn't transformed that yet into, in, into positive and that's why he's also called he's called an incomplete tzaddik why is it incomplete? because as I'll explain his love to God is also incomplete since his God, love to God is incomplete that's why he still retains some of the evil inside of him it's there 
It's subconscious. He doesn't feel it consciously. In a conscious level, it's as if it's gone. But buried deep down, it's still there. It's lurking. But it's totally neutralized, ineffective. But it's there. And he'll explain the difference between the two, the complete tzaddik and the incomplete tzaddik. He's also called... He's also called a tzaddik who knows evil, meaning that some vestige of evil still lingers within him in the left part of his heart, except that it finds no expression at all, not even in evil desires, because the evil, by reason of its minuteness, is subjugated and nullified by the good, and cannot therefore be sensed. Hence he, the tzaddik, may imagine that he has driven it out and it has quite disappeared. In truth, however, had all the evil in him departed and disappeared, it would have been converted into actual good. Okay, so what does it mean? Did he chase out the evil or he didn't chase out the evil? There are, there are two aspects to the animal soul. There is the expressions of the animal soul, and then there is the core. The core of the animal soul is not evil. It's just a bundle of energy. It's just, just once fun, it wants... Um, it's looking for excitement in life, it's looking for um, energy, vitality, passion. Um, then you have the expressions of the soul. The natural expressions of the soul are the clothes of the soul. The clothes are dirty clothes. It's not healthy, wholesome expressions. The animal soul is naturally expresses its desires and its energies in very unwholesome ways. We desire unwholesome things and... Uh, and uh, the, the, if you can separate the two, if you can shed those expressions, those clothes, those dirty clothes, and allow, substitute it for godly clothes, and allow the animal soul to express its passions, desire, its, its energy, to express its energy in a wholesome way, then, then you've turned around the, the animal soul. So he said he has not totally transformed the evil, in other words, the evil clothes, it still remains a vestige or something has remained, a trace. There's something still left of the evil inside of you. And since there's something still left of the evil inside of you, even though you think that, you're, that you're, you've totally rid yourself of it, because you don't feel it, but it's there. And since it's there, therefore, you haven't totally transformed the animal soul. The animal soul, you don't feel that total passion toward godliness. The animal soul should desire godliness with the same passion that everyone else desires materialism. That hasn't happened. In the complete tzaddik, that hasn't happened. It's more, more that you have neutralized the animal soul. So you feel the force and the power of your godly soul. And like a flame, you're on fire. Like a candle that's yearning to connect, to be holy, pure, innocent. But you have not turned around the animal soul, the ego. You don't feel that animalistic craving to godliness. That you don't have. You have a, a, a godly type of desire from the godly soul towards godliness, but you don't feel, you don't sense the animal craving towards godliness. You don't run to shul with the same craving that other people run to other places. So obviously, the animal soul inside of you hasn't, hasn't, you haven't turned around the animal soul inside. You've neutralized it. So it doesn't attract you, it doesn't draw you to anything negative but you haven't turned it around. That's the incomplete tzaddik. Let's skip to the bottom. The explanation of the matter is as follows. The complete tzaddik, in whom the evil has been converted into good, and who is consequently called a tzaddik who knows, who knows only good, 
has attained this level by completely removing his filthy garments from evil. This means he despises utterly the pleasures of this world, finding it repugnant to derive from them that pleasure which other people derive, namely the pleasure of merely gratifying the physical appetite, instead of using this pleasure toward the service of Hashem. For physical pleasures dedicated to serving Hashem are in fact holy. For example, the pleasure of enjoying a Shabbat with food and drink. It is not such pleasure that is repugnant to the tzaddik, but pleasure for the sake of self-indulgence. He despises such pleasures, for they are derived from and receive their spiritual sustenance from the klipa and sitra akra, the very antithesis of holiness. For the complete tzaddik utterly hates whatever is of the sitra akra, because of his great love, a profuse love of delights, and his superior degree of affection for Hashem and His Holiness. As mentioned above, in chapter 9 where the author Rebbe explained that love of delights is the ultimate level in the love of Hashem. To resume, because of the tzaddik's great love for Hashem and Holiness, he utterly hates the klipa and sitra akra, since they, i.e. Holiness and klipa, are antithetical. His love of Hashem therefore evokes a commensurate degree of hatred for Sitra Akra. So it is written, I hate them with a consuming hatred, says King David, of those who oppose Hashem. They have become enemies to me. Search me, he says to Hashem, and know my heart. This means by searching me and knowing how great is the love of you born in my heart. You will know how great is my hatred toward your enemies, for as stated, love is the measure of hate. It's two sides of the same coin. If you want to know if someone loves someone or something, the test is, do they hate the opposite? To the extent of the love is the extent of the hatred. If there's nothing in your life that you hate, if there's nothing in your life that you find repugnant, if there's nothing in your life that you find repulsive, that means that there's no love in your life. Because if you love something, you hate anything that opposes it. If you really, truly love someone and that person's life is threatened, if you don't hate that enemy and you don't act on protecting the person because your heart is so filled with love and you're against hating and against uh, battle or conflict, it means you, you don't understand the meaning of love. If you truly love life, anyone threatens life, you have to ferociously defend life. A person who claims to love and is not willing to defend that loved one, and not willing to defend life, doesn't love life, doesn't know the meaning of love. Because love and hate are two sides of the same coin. The deeper the love, the deeper the hatred for anything that can challenge that love. So King David says, you want to know how much I love you? You can tell how much I love you by how much I hate anything that opposes godliness. King David hated any manifestation of ego, arrogance, anything that's independent, split off, disconnected from God. And the depth of his hatred towards his enemies and the enemies of God and godliness matched the depth of his love towards anything that's godly. Because King David was so permeated with the reality of godliness that there is no other reality but God. Anything that opposed godliness, he hated with a consummate hatred because he was the ultimate lover, because he loved God with a consummate love. And therefore, anything that was in the way of godliness um, bothered him. 
it disturbs him. It's like when you have a good friend. Different levels of friendship. You can have a good friend. And if someone speaks bad about that person, you know, you're not going to join in, but how much does it bother you? Does it disturb you? If you had truly a good friend, then if someone speaks bad about, it, about your best friend, it bothers you because you want everyone else to love them. You want everyone else to know what a great person they are. So that's really the test of, of your love. How much do you really love them? Do you really love them? If you love them, you would despise anything, anything that can get in the way. So King David had the consummate love for God, for Hashem, and therefore, if there's anyone in the world that's opposed to God, or that despises God, King David was deeply disturbed by that. And it, it was, God's enemy was his enemy. So someone who doesn't know the meaning of hatred, doesn't know the meaning of love. A lot of pseudo-spiritual leaders today that talk about love, you know, when you're attacked, respond with flowers, and really have no understanding of the meaning of love, no understanding of the meaning of love of life. Or this, the, you know, the Torah teaches us, if you love life, life is holy to you, then you have to fight for life. You have to defend life. There's no turning the other cheek and there's no pacifism. If you love life, if someone threatens life, you have to become ferocious in the defense of life. And if a person is not ready to fight for life, that person doesn't love life and doesn't know the meaning of love. So it's two sides of the same coin. So if you truly love godliness, what's the sign? What's the test? If you truly hate anything that's the antithesis of godliness. And that's the difference between the tzaddik and the incomplete tzaddik. The complete tzaddik is one who loves God with a consummate, complete love. And therefore, he actually is repulsed. Is repulsed. He finds klippa, ego, arrogance, I. He finds it a repulse. The incomplete tzaddik also loves God. And it's a tremendous love to the extent that he doesn't even have a Yetzirah, is no longer even attracted to anything, anything negative. But to say that he hates, doesn't hate. He can still, on some level, he can still relate to the pleasure of materialism. But it's no, it has no attraction to him because his love for godliness is so overwhelming that it neutralizes, it silences any attraction he may have had toward materialism. So on a conscious level, it's dead. The attraction to materialism is dead. It has no role in his life. It's dead. For him, it's dead. The only attraction, the only thing that's exciting and enticing for him are godly things. But to say that he can't relate to that attraction, he could relate to that attraction. Just like in the analogy, the person who suddenly discovers his will, his powerful uh, desire to life, and suddenly he has that clarity, and when he's tempted to smoke that cigarette the choices are clear. The power to live is much more powerful than the instant gratification of smoking the cigarette. doesn't mean he can't relate to that pleasure. He can relate to that pleasure. He's been smoking all his life. He can relate to it, but it's not a contest because he has that clarity. But to say that he despises it, doesn't despise it, but he makes his choice. So to the incomplete side, they could relate to ordinary human beings. He, he understands the temptation and the power and the attraction of materialism. He understands what 99.9% the rest of us go through. But for him, it's dead. It's a dead issue. It's no longer an issue for him. He's, he's above it. He sees through it. He's, but that he despises, he doesn't despise. The complete tzaddik actually despises, is repulsed by, by materialism. 
He doesn't understand how a person could be attracted to something so empty, so superficial, so repulsive. Materialism per se, without any divine content to the complete tzaddik, is absolutely repulsive, it's repugnant. You can't relate to it. How can a person pursue materialism for materialism's sake without any thought of Hashem, without thinking about Hashem, without doing it for the sake of heaven? He can't relate to it. Because his love for Hashem is complete and perfect. Because his love for Hashem is perfect, his hatred for anything that's not Hashem, that's not godly, is also perfect. It's a consummate hatred. It's a perfect hatred. He despises it. He's repulsed by it. And he finds it completely repugnant. This is the complete tzaddik. So King David, obviously, was on this level. He says, Tachlis sinasanesim, have a consuming hatred. And he turns to God and says, you can, you can search my heart and you can know that that's true. Because you can know how deep my love is to you from the fact that I hate your enemies. And I hate them with a complete hatred. You can tell how, how, how loving I am. Now, you know, in today's day and age, it's not nice to hate. hate. Hating may even be detrimental to your health. But it's two sides of the same coin. A person who doesn't know the meaning of hate doesn't know the meaning of love. People who everything is the same to you, everything goes, anything goes, nothing is repulsive, nothing is repugnant, nothing upsets you, nothing bothers you, nothing troubles you. It's a person who is almost psychotic, a person who has lost any sense of reality, any sense of emotions, any sense of real feeling. And it's a person who's totally disconnected from reality. Because when a person is in touch with his neshama, with his soul, and feels deeply, and lives deeply, that person knows the true meaning of love, and he also knows the true meaning of hatred. It's one of the reasons why we say Elena at the end of davening, we, we spit at a certain part. I have a validity. Because there has to be one thing in life that you spit at. <laughs> There's nothing in life that you find repulsive. There's nothing in life that you find disgusting. You're so open-minded. <laughs> Anything goes and everything goes and nothing. There's nothing, nothing that you find repulsive or disgusting. Then, it's, then it's, it's... A person like that doesn't know the meaning of love. Doesn't know the meaning of faithfulness, loyalty. That has no depth. It's not genuine. It's surreal. It's, it's like make-believe. It's Hollywood. It's, 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 it's not real. But a person who's not sleeping through life, who's not sleepwalking through life, a person who's truly awake, who's sharp and alert, and is in touch with reality, with your own reality, your inner reality, and you feel deeply, and you live deeply, and you care deeply, then there are things that truly despise you. As the Torah says, you must hate Amalek. A person who cannot hate Amalek a person who doesn't hate a Hitler, a person who doesn't hate a Malik, is a person who doesn't know the meaning of love, doesn't know the meaning of anything. So it's really two sides of the same coin. So the complete tzaddik is someone who's actually repulsed by materialistic attraction. And he can't relate to it. Of course, this is one in, one in a generation. <laughs> This is if we, if we can't relate to the incomplete tzaddik, imagine trying to relate to the complete tzaddik. This is this is a different human being, a different type of person. 
a person was not only not attracted to materialism, but a person was actually repulsed and finds it repugnant and despises it. This is, this is a person who has achieved a total core transformation. As he says, as he said, he explained earlier in chapter 9, because he has a love of pleasure. It has touched his pleasure. It has touched his essence. You know the difference between pleasure and, and love, passionate love. Love is something more external to a person. Pleasure is much more internal. You know, pleasure is loud. I mean, I'm sorry, love is loud. Pleasure is quiet. When a person finds something pleasurable, it means it has become part of you. It has become part of your essence. It's something you're excited about. Excitement doesn't necessarily mean it's part of your essence. It's something exciting because it's new, it's novel, it's something different. It's like uh, a wealthy uh, Jew once stopped by yeshiva. In the olden days, the yeshiva students had nothing to eat. And he stopped by and he dropped off a few ducks. And the yeshiva students got so excited, they haven't seen meat in weeks. And they were getting so excited, so the, he was very disappointed. Here, he's donating expensive ducks to yeshiva students. It's supposed to be noble, refined. And here, they're getting all excited about ducks. He turns to the rabbi, he says, I, I eat... I eat steak every night and I don't get excited. And these yeshiva students who are supposed to be refined, look how excited they're getting. So the rabbi smiled and he says, listen, you know what the difference between you and them? Take away the duck from them and take away the steak from you. We'll see, it really gets excited. <laughs> <laughs> the yeshiva students are excited because it's novel, it's new. Of course they're excited. That means it's external to them. Take it away from them, fine. I lived for weeks without it. I'll live, I'll live another few years without it. It's no big deal. But pleasure means it's quiet. It means it's become part of your essence. Try to take it away from you and we'll see who really gets excited. The tzaddik, the complete tzaddik, the consummate tzaddik, is one who has his pleasure as godliness. His whole being has become godly. This is his pleasure. This is his, 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 his attraction. He's, he's attracted only to, only to godliness. His pleasure is God. His whole being has been totally transformed. It's very deep, subtle, intimate, quiet, and it's real. Total transformation. All good. Not a drop of evil left in him. Because he has turned around the pleasure principle, he has turned around, sublimated his ego into godliness. To be continued. Mm-hmm.